love you and we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for this time together. I ask you, Lord, to speak to us as we open up your word once again. We'll be careful to give you praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen, amen. And we are back in John chapter 4. And uh, I know in some ways it may seem like we're really going through this book slow, but that's okay. No rush. And, uh, and so we're in John chapter 4, and we're going to get John chapter 4 done for sure. And then we'll kind of see what happens here. But uh, I want to pick up, I think we may have started at verse 15 to 21, just a little bit, number three in your notes, facing the truth. We may have addressed it just a little bit, but we spent a lot of time on the living water last week. So starting at verse 15, the woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. And Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast now hast is not thy husband, uh, in that sense thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say in that you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. And uh, this whole conversation that Jesus has been having with this lady uh, at the well has led to, this is like the transition of the conversation, if you will. Um, and he's getting ready to force her, I shouldn't say force, but direct the conversation so it face, she has to face who she is and recognize who she is. And so she, he's closing in on the lifestyle that she has had. And uh, this is really a tactic that Jesus has with a lot of conversations that he has with people. He allows the person to debate or ask questions or, or engage in the conversation uh, until gets right to that point. And suddenly, in this case, the woman is, she catches a sight of who she is. And because I think in some ways, even though she probably came to the well at noon because she was ashamed of who she was and did things of that nature because of her quote unquote lifestyle, I think in a lot of cases when people live that way, they get used to living that way. And it becomes normal for them, if you will, and so they don't even really think about it. And, or they give up on ever letting their life change. Uh, I've talked with a lot of people that, are, that have been stuck in addictions that they're almost afraid of changing. And uh, maybe not even addiction, but I know people that they don't understand how to live life without being in a major conflict or drama. And so everything gets going well, and because they get uncomfortable, they cause something to happen so that they can get back into their comfort zone. And so she's, she's coming to an understanding here, and she's being compelled by the conversation to face who she really is. And uh, in your notes here, you'll see there's really two revelations that happen in Christianity. You'll get a revelation of who God and Christ is, and then you'll also get a revelation of who we are as individuals. And uh, I've heard it said that prophecy is simply criticism based on hope. 
A, a prophet points out all of our faults and our failures, but he doesn't do so, or she doesn't do so, to condemn. They do so in order to give hope for uh, a greater life and a transformation that can take place. And so Jesus is talking here, and she's now getting confronted. And notice, you know, we talked a little bit last week. You know, the first thing she does is she argues about the well and what he has to draw with. Now she's arguing about history that you say, or debating kind of religion, if you will. You say that, the Jews say that you worship here, and we say that you worship there, who's right? And Jesus doesn't even really deal with that. He just says in verse 21, believe me, the hour comes where it's not gonna be in Jerusalem, it's not gonna be in this mountain that, that people are going to worship. And so that leads us to verse 22 to 26 tonight. Verse 22, you worship, you know not what, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah comes, which is called Christ. When he is come, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto thee, and he, and he, and so that's kind of where we left off last week. But uh, we have to understand, in order to understand true worship, we have to identify some false worship. And uh, in false worship, there's three faults that you can find if, and recognize. The first one here in your notes, false worship is a selective worship. It's one of the most dangerous things in the world is to have a one-sided religion, if you will. And we would do well to remember that, although nobody's ever gonna grasp all of truth. Okay, we're still gonna see through a glass darkly until we see him face to face. First John 3, 2 says, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But uh, what ends up happening when you select certain aspects of who he is, um, and you just begin to worship the certain parts of it. For instance, um, let me backtrack just a little bit and just share with you what I believe is the difference between praise and worship, okay? Praise is how we express ourselves because of who he is, what he has done, and we lift him up because of that. Worship goes deeper than praise, and there is a spiritual connection it's really you step into communion with God. And, and that's why he's not really seeking for more praisers. Uh, praise is a way to open up the doors into the presence of God. Uh, if you read the Psalm, Psalm 100, I believe it is, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Praise is the mechanism, thanksgiving is the mechanism that gets us from the outer courts to the inner courts but when you get into the inner courts of the presence of God, he's looking for communion. He's looking for worship. He's looking for it to be very, very personal. And so false worship is taking just a bit of one aspect of God, if you will, and lay into that. So, and, and what I mean by that is, so some people don't understand that worship comes even when a miracle doesn't come. Okay? Because they have focused in and selected the miracle working power of God. And they won't step outside 
of that to worship him in the hard times. And so here's, here's how people like that operate. They are on fire for God when the miracles are happening in their lives. And when the miracles dry up, their worship dries up. Okay? Which lets me know that that worship is a false worship. It's really not a true worship. Because a worshiper, a true worshiper, will worship in whichever situation they're in, no matter what's going on. They've already made up in their mind that I am going to love him regardless of what's going on around me. And uh, so when I watch people, and some, of, uh, some people do it consciously, some people do it unconsciously, okay? They, they don't recognize the difference. But when I watch Christians do the whole roller coaster ride with God, what's, what's really happening? Here's what's happening. They're selecting certain parts. And it's usually the parts of God that make them feel good. Um, because God can't be in suffering. God forbid that I should suffer and, and deal with things. And, and, but that, that's really, you find that in Scripture. There are ministries in the world of Christendom today uh, that focus solely on the feel good of God and dismiss or disregard the judgment side of God. And I, I wish I could remember the scripture off the top of my head. It's in one of the Corinthians, letters to the Corinthians, that uh, Paul says, Behold the two faces of God. I take that back. He doesn't say that. That's the title of the message I used. The verse says, Behold the goodness and terribleness of God. And there is a good side of God, and then there's a side of God to fear. And not just the awe and reverence fear. I fear disappointing him. I fear letting him down. It's not, I'm not afraid of him, but I fear having that communion broken. Does that make sense? That's why the psalmist says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If I'm fearful, and the, the parallel that I give you to that is with me and my earthly father. My dad was a big guy. He was 6'3", 250 pounds of muscle. Uh, he was an enforcer in the hockey world. And... So I was a goody two-shoes when I was in high school and when I was growing up, not because I wanted to be a good kid and didn't want to rebel at all, but because I feared the belt coming from him. And uh, I will tell you that there was a certain amount of fear of the pain, not just fear of disappointing him, not just fear of getting him upset, but fear of the repercussions of what I was going to face. And uh, that transition my wisdom became that I didn't get in trouble as often, and what ended up happening is my relationship with him transitioned from a fearful kind of relationship to the, to the awe and reverence kind of relationship. And that's really what happens with God. But when you have a selective worship or a selective time when you'll connect with God, you're, you're, you're missing out on so much of what God is and who God is. Uh, let it be in your notes, a false worship is an ignorant worship. E.F. Scott said that religion is far more than merely the strenuous exercise of the intellect, intellect, but that nonetheless a very great part of religion's failure is due to nothing other than intellectual sloth. Uh, I believe it's Hosea says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. There is 
it kind of goes hand in hand with selective worship because some people are afraid to learn more about God because the more you learn about God, the more you learn about yourself. And we don't like facing ourselves all the time. And so I would rather not know this characteristic of God because if I know this characteristic of God, it's going to come back on me and then I'm going to have to deal with me and that's not comfortable. That's not what I want. Okay. And so if I can just remain in ignorance. Okay. And there again, sometimes that's done consciously. Sometimes it's just an unconscious deal. Sometimes it's somebody doesn't know how to study the word of God. It's one of the reasons why we do this kind of a setting to where we can actually dig into some of these things that you wouldn't normally just, just reading the scripture, you wouldn't just absorb it. And uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, I am a proponent, not only of reading your Bible through, I, I think that's awesome. And I've done it a few times, but I've also gotten a whole lot, probably more out of taking certain parts of the Bible and say, okay, for the next six months, I'm doing a deep dive on this book or on this passage or on this topic. And instead of just reading the Bible to read the Bible and say that I've read the Bible. Now, on a ground level, beginning point, that's awesome to read the Bible through. And we've got people in our church that, what I like about what they do is they read the Bible through every year, but they do a different version every year. And some of them are so into it that if you look at the Bible that they're reading, they've got notes and highlights and everything. They've got it all grouped. I mean, it's not just a casual reading to them. So those kinds of people, I'm like, yeah, let's do that. But it's a starting phase just to say, okay, I'm going to read the Bible this year and be able to say that I read it. But once you get to a relationship with him, I've got to, I've got to get some more meat and potatoes. I can't stay ignorant of him. And one of the reasons I can't stay ignorant of him is John 17, 3 says that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only God in Jesus Christ who thou hast sent. That word know there is an intimacy word, not just head knowledge, but to get have an actual relationship. That's what gives us life eternal. And so um, if somebody is just worshiping out of ignorance, that tends to be a false worship because they don't even know what they're really worshiping about. And then letter C, a false worship is a superstitious worship. It's a worship that is based on a man feeling that it might be dangerous not to give it. Okay? I better worship because if not, I'm going to get blasted. And a lot of this comes from, there's a philosophy out there that God is this distant figure that's way far away and just waiting to blast somebody for messing up and making a mistake. Totally misunderstanding the concept of a heavenly father, uh, of, a, of a relationship or a concept of a healthy marriage relationship, which the Bible uh, classifies the church as the bride of Christ. And, and, and so you get this misunderstanding and then you get different songs and different ideologies. Uh, there was a song a long time ago, man, it's probably been 30, maybe even longer than 30 years ago. Uh, Bette Midler sang it. Uh, and the title of it was from a distance. God is watching us. 
And that song, the way she was singing it, made a lot of sense. Because what she was saying was, he, he, from a distance he was watching, he wasn't seeing all of the quote-unquote scars and all of the mess-ups and all the, he just loved me enough, you know. And so just like you and I, you know, that thing looks pretty until you get up to it. Uh, that brand new car looks great until you get up to it and see all the scratches and the dents, you know, that kind of a thing. But the mentality of that is that God is off in the distance somewhere. And that thought process came in. And so uh, that's, that's what a superstitious worship is. And so then Jesus takes this passage and he begins to point to true worship. And so in verse 24, it's important to understand this. God is a spirit. God is a spirit. And as soon as man grasps the reality, there's three things that happen if you'll understand that God, deity, is a spirit. Number one there, if God is a spirit, God is not confined to things. Which means I can find him anywhere. At any time. Uh, he, if God is a spirit, he's not confined to places. Okay, I don't need to get to the church to get a hold of God. I can get a hold of God anywhere I'm at. And then let us see, if God is a spirit, a man's gift to God must be gifts of the spirit. The only gifts that befit God are the gifts of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, obedience, etc. And so true worship is when the Spirit or the immortal and invisible part of man speaks to and meets with God himself immortal and invisible. Okay? The only way that we can do that, however, is what we've talked about in the first couple passages of John in 1, 2, and 3, and that is the flesh of God has created the opportunity for our spirits to dwell in his presence. So I want you to notice here again, he writes something, John writes this, and just like we've been talking about, we have to always remember the foundation of what John is, is doing here in John. He's trying to reveal Jesus, okay? But notice what he says in verse 24, and a lot of people don't catch this. God is a spirit. Notice that it doesn't say God the Father. It doesn't say God the Son. It doesn't say God the Holy Ghost. It says God, Theos, which means all of God is a spirit. But then notice what he says in the next phrase. And they that worship him, him, singular, must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, now notice if you remember again what John is doing, he's revealing the mighty God, the Godhead, Theos, who has become flesh, Logos, who took on flesh in verse 14 of chapter 1. This is a reaffirmation that Jesus is saying, and he's saying it in language that those in that day picked up on like that, but those today we try to parse it too much. Notice what it says if God is a spirit, they, and they that worship him, singular, must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay? Now let's tie four words together. Spirit, him, spirit, truth. God is a spirit. Deity is a spirit. You and I will never see deity outside of seeing the face of Jesus. Because he's a spirit. Okay? Until he took on flesh, 
He didn't have a human face that could be responded to. But now as a spirit, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There is a reason that John writes in spirit and in truth. Somebody tell me what that is. What does spirit represent? In, in, in regards to chapters 1, 2, and 3, what we've been talking about. Spirit is, God is a, God is a deity, spirit. Okay, so spirit is referring to his deity. We must worship him in spirit on a deity level and in truth. What does John 1, 17 say? Or 18, 17. How did truth come in? Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, okay, which was the word made flesh. So in verse 24, Jesus is saying the way to truly worship him is to worship him on a spirit level, a deity level, but also on a truth level, which is the manifestation of almighty God in flesh. Because in chapter one, let's look at it, it's verse 17, I think. Yeah, verse 17, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And, and, and so when, when Jesus is having this conversation with this woman, she's revealing something to her. And John is now after, again, he's writing it 100 years or 70 years after Christ resurrected. He's writing and he's saying, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. The only way I know to do that is to recognize who God is. And that is God manifest in flesh, deity, spirit, and truth, flesh. You see how that, you see how that works? And, and, and so when we recognize Christ here, uh, and again, the reason why Jesus talks in somewhat veiled language is because he can't do what Satan did and Adam and Eve did and grasp after equality with God as a man until the trumpet sounds. The Bible says everything will be put under his feet. There won't be need for a mediator anymore. Okay, so then that goes on. So the woman says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming, which is called the Christ. And when he has come, he'll tell us all things. Okay, so she recognizes the concept of what John is saying in verse 24. That being, and here's the reason why. Because remember, Samaritans were a mix of Jew and Gentile. So the Jewish upbringing, here the Shema, they quoted it everywhere they went. Hero is with the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord is one. He brought Deuteronomy, oh my goodness, my mind went like six, five, I think. My mind went blank. But they, they, they quoted it everywhere. And when they entered in a room, they quote the Shema. When they came out of the room, they quote the Shema. Hero is with the Lord our God is one. They understood in the one true living God, and John has revealed that that one true living God became flesh, and she's understanding that she's recognizing the prophecies of the Messiah of old, but remember their concept of Messiah was a world conqueror coming in to kick out the Romans and, and set up an earthly kingdom. That was their view of it. And she says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all things. So Jesus, I'm having this conversation with you and you're telling me I need to worship in spirit and truth. And, and I'm not sure yet about you, but I know that when the Messiah comes, or which is called Christ, he's going to tell us and then, then I'll be good. Okay. And that's when Jesus responds 
I that speak unto thee am. I am. We mentioned that a little bit last week. I am. So here again in verses 24 and 25 and 26, we're seeing John reveal Jesus again as the mighty God manifest in, in flesh and, and, and manifest through the man Christ Jesus. And, and it, it reveals a power because here's, here's the thing. When you understand that all of God is in the man Christ Jesus, you don't have to guess at who you're worshiping. Because you're worshiping the same person. You just may be worshiping him in spirit. So when you say praise God, you're correct. And when you say I love you Jesus, you're correct because it's talking to the same being, if you will. It's just one is deity, one part of it is deity, one part of it is humanity until, according to 1 Corinthians 15, until that day when everything's put under his feet and he becomes all in all and will look on his face when we get to heaven. There was one preacher a long time ago that began to teach and preach and got into some really almost tritheism more than even Trinitarianism. He classified himself as a Trinitarian, but he said he was going to see three in heaven, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And uh, until somebody approached him and said, well, how are you going to see God the Father if he's spirit and differentiate between the Holy Spirit if he's spirit? And then you're going to see Jesus. And when the Bible says there's only one on the throne, which one is going to be on the throne? And if there's only one on the throne and, and you're only going to recognize Christ, well, then why did the Father and the Holy Spirit abdicate all of their authority and give up their power, if you will? Because Jesus said, all power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. It's because it's the same. It's Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, Colossians 2.9. In him, talk about Christ, dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's the revelation, a further revelation of who Jesus is. And so now when he says that, and again, remember in verse 26, the word he there is in italicized lettering, which means the translators added it. When you take that word he out, it just says, I that speaketh unto thee am. And, and really you can take speaketh unto thee a little bit out too, because that's just reaffirming what he's saying. Jesus responds, I am, which would have triggered everything in that woman to what back what God said, this is my name. Tell them that I am sent me. And, uh, and so Jesus says, I am. All of a sudden, the disciples show up in verse 27, and they begin to see some of the things that take place. So we're going to read uh, 27 to 30. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman, yet no man said, What seekest thou? Because they were chicken. <clears throat> and uh, why talkest thou with her? Uh, or why talkest thou? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And they went out of the city and came unto him. The disciples were amazed for many reasons. Number one, I think they were probably still questioning, however, having to go through Samaria. 
Remember back at the beginning of chapter 4, we said must needs go through. They're probably still questioning, but at the same time, I think they're starting to get a little bit of a revelation that Jesus breaks barriers because at least they went into the town to find food. Okay? But when they come back, not only is he in Samaria, he's talking to a Samaritan woman. And I'm sure in the, in the, at the noon hour, or maybe, I don't know how long the conversation took, maybe they're back at 1 o'clock or something like that. But in that time, the woman would not have normally been there unless there was a mark against her. So she probably was of ill repute just by being there at that time of the day. So the disciples probably ran, okay, now it's a Samaritan, it's a woman, probably not a woman of, of good standing in the community. What in the world's going on? And, uh, but they didn't ask him. I think they were a little bit leery of getting rebuked, I think. Um, but then the woman goes and she leaves her water pot. She says, uh, go and come out. Now this, this response from the woman tells us a little bit about our experience with Christ. Letter A in your notes. Her experience began with being compelled to face herself and see herself as she is. When you come into the presence of God, you cannot help but see yourself like Isaiah did in old. Woe is me, a man of unclean lips. When the presence of God starts to move, none of us feel worthy because we recognize how shortcoming we are. Okay? Then letter B, the woman was staggered by Christ's ability to see into her innermost being. Um, but I want you to notice that in, in your notes here, I've got it too, but it's not Christ's desire to look into our hearts and see only the evil. He also sees the, what I call the sleeping hero of the soul of every man. He sees the potential. Uh, I read a saying one time, and, and I think it's very appropriate, and I love it. It says, love is not blind. It sees everything. But because it sees everything, it's willing to see less. Okay. Sometimes we say, well, love is blind. They don't see all the shirt. No, love sees everything and it takes all of the good and all of the bad and then it chooses which stuff to look at. And Christ's love always looks at the good stuff that's in us. Um, and, and I know the Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing good about us. But there, if nothing else, the only thing that I can respond to that is there's only one thing that makes it good, and that is we're created in his image, and his image is good. So it may not be us, it may not be our thinking, I mean, but we're still in his image, so there's something good in there that he sees that he wants to restore. Uh, let her see the first instinct of a woman was to share her discovery. It's amazing to me when somebody comes either to a new revelation or somebody comes to Christ for the first time, or somebody comes to a church where the power of God is moving, how quickly they are wanting to share it with somebody else. I don't know why that wears off on people. I wish it wouldn't. I wish it wouldn't on me either. I wish I would have the same vibrancy uh, of getting out and sharing what Christ has done, whether or not it's brand new to me or not, because he's still doing it. And uh, then letter D, the very desire to tell others of her discovery killed in this woman the feeling of shame. Here's the, the, the writer in Revelation says, this is how you overcome 
by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Why is the word of your testimony so powerful? Well, we see it in this woman. When she came eye to eye with Christ and understood that he was the Messiah and the one that they were looking for, and that she had the opportunity to have this conversation, she began to share her, he told me everything I've ever done, and yet he still talked to me. Uh, you have to kind of read behind the line, or between the lines, when she goes into the into the into the community and begins to talk to the people, listen, he's telling me everything. Isn't this the isn't this the isn't this what we've been looking for? We've been talking about it for years and years, and he has just read my life story without ever having contact with me, and now I'm sharing it with. Well, all of a sudden, by her sharing that, it releases the bondage of her shame, and now she's saying unto all the men and women of the community, come on and see him. It doesn't register with us. It's still in the hour of the day where they're not supposed to be going to the well outside of that. They're not supposed to be going out talking to a Jew. They're not supposed to be doing those kinds of things. But yet the power of her testimony has now released the bondage of who she was and is bringing and inviting other people into her situation. And the shame goes away. And that happens with us. If we'll be willing to share our testimony you will find that the bondage of things around you begin to break a whole lot easier because you have now exposed the power of God in your life. It's the reason why I've always told people, you may not be able to sit down with somebody and explain all of scripture to them, but everybody has a testimony of some sort that you can sit down and say, well, I don't understand how the genealogies line up in scripture, but this is what Jesus did for me. And when we talk about what Jesus did for me, nobody can refute that because it's me. You can't tell me that I didn't have this experience. It's the reason why people, there's, there, there was a movement years ago, and I'm sure it's probably still out there, that the speaking in tongues is, is no longer available to people. And my response is, well, you came too late for that. I've already experienced it. You can't take that away from me. G.T. Haywood, um, as the story goes, he was in the debate back in the early 1900s of trying to identify this revelation of the mighty God in Christ. G.T. Haywood was the leader of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World and uh, wrote several songs, was a powerful preacher, and was a key voice in the whole construct and debate going on among the church in the early 1900s about whether the Trinity was right or whether Jesus' name baptism was right or whether it was mighty God in Christ or if it was one and three, three and one, etc., etc. And so the story goes, he locked himself in his office for seven days and didn't come out. And uh, one of the gentlemen that was trying to be a proponent of the Trinitarian mindset had set up an appointment. He wanted to get to him because they knew back in those days it had to be somewhat of a political deal as well as it was a church deal uh, or, a, or an ideological deal uh, because they were all trying to get the right people on the right team. And if they would have been able to get G.T. Haywood to come out against this oneness revelation of the mighty God in Christ, 
they probably would have been able to, to lead a huge, well, the PAWs is a huge organization that was, uh, and G.T. Haywood was one of the biggest reasons that that organization even still exists today. And uh, the story goes that he came out of his office after seven days and uh, he said, he wrote the song, I See a Crimson Stream of Blood. And uh, his comment, according to the stories, when this gentleman that came and tried to convince him of the heresy of the, of the oneness doctrine, of being buried in Jesus' name, of Jesus being the manifestation of Almighty God, he looked at the gentleman, he said, you've come seven days too late. God had already spoke to him. God had already dealt with him in that seven days. And he wrote some songs, everybody ought to know who Jesus is. Uh, I see a crimson stream of blood and it flows from Calvary and uh, powerful stuff. And, uh, but that's really what this woman's, your personal testimony, when this woman starts sharing it, nobody's gonna ever convince her again that Jesus isn't real. Because she has had a personal connection and not only does she has a personal connection, she has now shared it with somebody else. And you can't put the toothpaste back into the tube, so to speak. Once it's out there, it's out there. Does that make sense? Praise God. Um, so then we go to verse 31 here. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? These guys, thick skulls. Which gives me hope. <laughs> Jesus said to them, My need is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And uh, the great concept of the humanity of Christ, the reason why he was able to make a way for you and I to get back to God was because as a man he submitted himself to the things of his father, if you will, the things of deity. Philippians chapter two, if you wanna write that next to your notes, um, it's called a kenosis text or a self-emptying text. And a Trinitarian will teach that that Philippians two passage is Jesus in heaven, giving up all of heaven and coming to earth. But there's nowhere in scripture that deals with the fact that Jesus was in heaven and came to earth. It says that God was born in Bethlehem. And, uh, and, and so when you read it, it says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, or form of man, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, neither, uh, but became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus, as in his humanity, was the perfect example for us so that we can follow after him. Okay? So, uh, letter A in your notes, to do the will of God is the only way to peace, it's the only way to happiness, it's the only way to power. Okay? Verse 35 to 38, I, I already read 35, let's start verse 36. He that reapeth receives wages, gathereth fruit into eternal life, that both he... Uh, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. 
I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor, other men labored, and you are entered into their labors. Now, this is another aspect of Jesus. Remember where he's having this conversation from. He's having it from where he's already broken down a major barrier by going into Samaria. And so he's really telling the disciples, listen, we came from Judea through Samaria to get to Galilee, but I'm wanting you to step into the fields of all kinds of places. And we don't see that really come to fruition until later after uh, Pentecost and after the, the churches start to rise. Paul raises up the churches, but Peter, James, and John go to all different places as well. Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10 is an example where Simon Peter went and broke down barriers. And it's interesting to note that this scripture comes to pass in Acts chapter 10 because Cornelius was a man of faith, a man where God realized, okay, and Peter comes in and harvests what he did not plan, if, you're, if you read Acts chapter 10. And, um, and the Jews had a six-fold division of the agricultural year. Each division had two months, seed time, winter, spring, harvest, summer, and then the season of extreme heat. And so there's uh, some things that we need to notice about this passage. He told his disciples that they would reap a crop that had not been that had been produced not by their labor. Okay, I, I believe that there's a reason for that because I believe that Jesus is establishing a fact that everything starts with Him and ends with Him. Hebrews chapter 12 or is it Romans 12? Romans 12 verse 2 the author and the finisher of our faith Jesus starts it Jesus will finish it we reap the harvest in the in between we have to plant seeds but, but it's not us that does the work we can't create uh, there, there's, let me put it to you this way there is something that happens for a long time that would happen that I would walk away from some services feeling absolutely condemned by the teacher or the preacher in the pulpit. And that was when they would say, you've got to win a soul. And you've never heard that. If you don't win a soul, you're not going to, you're, you're not worth anything. And I would walk away because my forte was not walking up to some stranger and start a conversation and quote unquote win a soul. And I got frustrated to the point in my prayers with God because I would go to these services and, and unless you win a soul, unless you win a soul, unless you win a soul. Finally, in my prayer time with God, I said, God, what does it mean to win a soul? Because preachers had taken the one phrase in the Old Testament that says, he that wins souls is wise. And uh, because it was taught or preached that winning a soul was you went out and you talked to somebody that didn't know Christ, you led them to Christ, you discipled them to Christ, you, you, know, you went all the way, and when they received the, the, their new birth experience, then you won a soul. Well, I finally got to the point that I said, God, what does it mean to win a soul? And he led me to some of these passages. This is one of the passages. 
I'm going to reap where I had not planted. I'm going to have, so when is the soul won? So I got to thinking about the concept of winning a soul. Is the soul won? Then when you do, let me back up to say, when you do church growth work and you read studies and and all of these things that people have spent hours and hours and gone to all kinds of churches to watch and see how it happens in, in church growth and to realize that a person will make up a decision in their mind within the first seven minutes of coming on the church property whether they'll come back. So when you hear that, I'm like, okay, as the preacher, I'm not getting to them at least for 40 minutes. So who wins them? The person at the door? The person that greets them at the chair? The person that leads the song? The person that teaches or preaches? The, the, who's the winner of the soul? And I realized that the concept of winning souls is not what I can do, it's what God does through me in whichever state of the crop they are. So there are people and when I, when I grasped this um, concept, I went to somebody in our church because there was a gentleman on our church that could get anybody to come to church at least once. I mean, he could go anywhere in the city and he would have a busload of people coming on a Sunday. But his gifting was not discipling. So I went to him and I said, you get them here, I'll work on discipling them. I'll take my strength and your strength and we'll team up. And so we had so many people that came and were, were, were came to the Lord, baptized, began. There's several preachers and preachers' wives out there that he brought to the church and I discipled. And so I asked a leadership group one time after I gave the example, I said, who's the one that won the soul? Was it him or was it me? And then the scripture that Paul writes, some plants, some waters, but God gives the all I can do, and what this passage is saying is, we need to do what we're supposed to do. So if you're good at planting seeds, be a seed planter. If you're good at harvesting crops, harvest the crops. Whatever it is, that's, that, that's we're doing the will of God. And when that began to happen, oh man, I was so excited because I didn't have that condemnation anymore. I had the peace, the happiness, and the power of God. And it wasn't produced by my labor. And letter B in your notes, he told his disciples that the day would come when they would sow and others would reap. I saw that happen in my life as well. Now this is going way, way back because this was going way back to when the cassette tapes were there. Let me remember the cassette tapes. And uh, we would tape our services. And at the time I was teaching three of the four Sundays a month. And so they, because we would have, like we do here, we'd have our Sunday school on and then we would have, and I taught three Sundays and then another gentleman taught the fourth Sunday and then pastor usually preached the main service. And uh, so they would record both of them. Well, I didn't realize it, but somebody was going and buying up all of my tapes that they had recorded and was mailing them to a woman in Colorado. And until Facebook came into existence, I didn't know this was even happening. But after Facebook kicked off and we got on there, this woman friended us on Facebook and shared with us 
that it was all of the messages that were sent to her with the tape that was, had changed her life and that it brought her to the Lord and that it strengthened her and administered to her. And so I was sowing and somebody else was reaping what that, that person, okay? So the principle isn't, when we pray therefore labors because the harvest is ready, it doesn't mean you have to have everybody do the same thing. That's not what Jesus is saying. And each disciple themselves had a different personality. And, and, and it's the reason why uh, when, once we get into the book of Acts, you see that these men traveled sometimes in pairs. So you had Paul and Barnabas or Paul and John Mark, and sometimes you had three of them. And Paul and Silas went and did some things. And Peter and James and John, it was Peter and John in Acts chapter 3. They went and did things together because they accentuated each positive you know, I can just picture just by the way it's written and the way it's acted that John was the more mellow guy and Simon Peter was the more brash guy and they balanced each other, you know. And so if, when, when Jesus is talking here about the harvest, don't get down on yourself that you're not doing what somebody else is doing. Do what God is asking you to do. You may just be somebody that holds the water faucet and pours out prayers and pours out encouragement and pours out a testimony from time to time and maybe answer a question or you're there because they've gone into the hospital or you're there to bring them food or uh, and you don't even know what's all happening but you're doing what God is asking you to do and then down the road somebody else is coming behind and supporting what you're doing by sharing them what the, thus says the word of the Lord and, and, and lead, do you understand what I'm saying? It's all a team it's all, we are the body of Christ and every member of the body has a different responsibility and so what Jesus is saying is here lift up your eyes look under the fields you're white ready to harvest and all of you are going to reap some and all of you are going to sow some and it's not going to be the same person doing it all the time that excites me because it doesn't fall on me to do everything okay now I have been a greeter before I have been a Sunday school teacher. I've been a janitor. I was a janitor at 14 years old. Old ABI. It was the worst job in the history of man. <laughs> that building was so big. I, you know, pastor was like, oh, you'd probably take three, four hours a week. Yeah, three, four hours a day. <laughs> it was huge. And, uh, and but, I, but I did it because, uh, number one, I needed a job. And number two, I just wanted to be around the church. So I've done janitorial, I've done, I've done everything. Has there been one that's meant more than the other? Looking back, I see good in all of them. I can, I can take you back to where I was a youth pastor and we would gather the young people before church and have youth prayer and the power of God into the prayer room. And we would walk them into the sanctuary drunk in the spirit already before the service even started. And when the parents saw their kids coming in that way, oh my, we had church that night. So, so there's all different kinds. We all have different roles to play, different, the, each hand has a different purpose, each foot has a different purpose, every, every person's eye has, a, we all have different purposes, but we're still uh, working in the same fields, if you will. Which leads us to A and B here. There's always an opportunity and there's always a challenge. And opportunity and challenge always go together. 
Because if there's an opportunity, you're going to have to work through the challenge to get to the opportunity. And sometimes it's the challenge that is the opportunity. And we don't recognize that. We think, well, the challenge is just something we have to fight through. Well, that's an opportunity for God to do something. That leads us to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified, who told me that ever I did, all that I ever did. Uh, so when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days, and many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The, the rise came in three stages. There was the introduction, there was the intimacy that was growing in knowledge and then the discovery and surrender. Um, John in this passage here in verse 42 did not invent the title of Savior. That was an Old Testament. God had been called the God of salvation, the Savior, the saving God. And many of the Greek gods had acquired this title. And so at the time of John, even uh, when he wrote this, the Roman Empire was invested with the title Savior of the world. And so it was as if Jesus was saying, all that you've dreamed of, all that you've thought of, has finally come to pass in Jesus. And see, that's what we don't understand is sometimes that's the greatest argument, if you will, with somebody. Paul did it on Mars Hill. He didn't discount what they believed. He said, you've got an idol here to the unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. In this case here, John is saying, listen, you've been looking for the Savior. Let me introduce you to him. Okay? So when we talk to people today, you're looking for eternal life. You're looking for something that's bigger than you. You're looking for something that's powerful. You're looking for something that's life-changing. Let me introduce you to who that is. Because here's what I believe. I believe that, how do I want to put this? We make the mistake as people of treating symptoms and not problems. Okay? Um, I mean, you think about it. Every symptom stems from a problem. So what, I, what I'm talking about is people that try drugs and alcohol and get addicted, that's a symptom. That's not the problem. The problem isn't their addiction, and yet we try to treat their addiction. It, it's the reason why in this church we have established chain breakers as a restoration ministry, because I'm not as concerned about their recovery as I am about their restoration, because their recovery is only overcoming the symptoms. The restoration takes care of the problem. What's the problem? The problem is somewhere along their in their life, there was an emptiness that they filled with the wrong thing. That emptiness could have started from anything. It could have started from an abusive situation. It could have been caused from, from just trying to fit in in high school. They got mixed up in all of that, and, and, and they just began to crave all the stuff that's out there. And It could have happened. But in all those things, it is... The, the problem is the emptiness that they're trying to fill and the and, and, and too many programs deal with the symptoms and not the problem. 
The problem is you need to get that stuff out of you so that Jesus can fill the emptiness that's in you. And when that takes place, the symptoms will eventually go away because you have something that's filling the emptiness that you tried to fill with in the first place. Okay. And, and so we look at this, this whole concept of dealing with um, the concept of, of, of who Jesus is. The reason why people are so hungry and thirsty is because all we've done is dealt with symptoms. And Jesus is stepping here and he's saying, okay, let's go beyond the symptom. The symptom was that she had five husbands and the man that she was with wasn't her husband. That was a symptom. What was the problem? We never know what really the problem is, but we know that Jesus takes care of it because now she recognizes who Jesus is in her life. She, he's the Christ, the savior of the world. And, and, and so these people, these men and women that have come out and see that they say he's indeed the Messiah, he's the savior of the world. He, it's, it, it's this Old Testament, people are looking. People are still looking. They just don't know what they're looking for. They're searching for something that will be fulfilling, something that will bring peace, something that will bring happiness, something that will bring power into their life. They're looking for something and they're trying everything. And what happens is the things of this world, the things of the adversary are things that when they get in there, it wraps it up and ties it up. And so that's why we have to have bondage being broken by Christ. But if everybody would just find Christ instead of all the other stuff, that's the Savior. So really, what is, see, I am of the belief that Jesus saves more than just from hell. I'm convinced more than ever um, that God, that we have spent so much time as religious people, as church people, worried about heaven and hell and the afterlife, that we have missed this life. Now, don't get me wrong. This life is the precursor to that life. And I look forward to the day when the trumpet sounds and we gather around the throne. But Jesus was the Savior, not just to save us out of hell, but to save us out of all of the stuff that was taking place in our lives. Okay? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean by that is think about this woman here. And number one, she's full of shame and guilt. We know that because of the day that she, the hour of the day that she comes to the well. She is hungry for true aspects of God. We see that in her conversation. You know, you say that in this mountain, we say in this mountain, you say Jerusalem. So she, she, she has an understanding a little bit. She knows that when the Christ comes, he's gonna say, he's gonna tell everything. Okay, so she is battling. She is the fulfillment of what Paul writes in Romans 7. I don't do what I know I should do, and I do what I know I shouldn't do. And there's that bad. And when she comes into contact with Christ, something happens to her 
and not only to her, but to those she shares it with. And then they come and they experience him for themselves. And all of a sudden, something begins to shape, change and shift. If we would ever understand that Jesus came to save us from ourselves, Jesus came to save us from our situation, Jesus came to save us, if Jesus came to give us eternal life right now. See, there's too many churches that teach that eternal life starts when we die or when the trumpet sounds. Eternal life starts now. When you have him in you, when you have a new life in him, you walk in newness of life. That is your, I'm walking my eternal life right now. I'm walking my eternal life in my mortal body. There's coming a day when my mortality is going to become immortal. My corruption is going to be incorruptible. And there's going to be a whole new body. But I'm already living my eternal life. And the reason why that's important to understand is the concept of faith. Okay? Because faith is really this. Faith is reaching to a future point and bringing it back to our present. Okay? So when I understand that I am living my eternal life now, I'm saved, sanctified by God. I'm not perfect yet. I'm not in heaven yet. I'm not incorruptible yet. If I was, I wouldn't have as much gray hair. I, but by faith, I'm already living. <laughs> I'm already living like I'm in heaven. That changes my worship. That changes what we've been talking about. There's a shift of spirit and truth when I recognize that in my spirit, in my mind, I'm standing. When I gather here on Sundays or when I'm in my home, when I begin to worship, I'm standing at the throne of Christ and I'm already worshiping him because by faith I'm stepping into my future and I'm bringing it back to my today and I'm experiencing a little bit of heaven here on earth and I'm experiencing a little bit of the throne room here on earth. It's the reason why Hebrews says we can go boldly into the throne of grace. Can you imagine how boldly we're going to walk into his throne room when the trumpet sounds? We can already do that by faith because he has saved us. Does that make sense? Awesome. Verse 43 to 45. After two days, he departs and goes into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. When he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Um, having no honor in his own country, it's where we get the phrase familiarity breeds contempt. Um, and in this passage, it, it's one of the real truths, and that is this. The only real argument for Christianity is a Christian experience. Okay? They had not had a Christian experience. He testified that a prophet had no honor in his own country. And, and, and they saw... They, they received him in verse 45 because they had seen what he had done. At, they had an experience with Christ. Um, it's the reason why we have to be very careful as Christians not to judge non-Christians. But to accept them for where they're at because they have not experienced him yet. 
Does that make sense? Because what ends up happening is um, the only way for it, the only way to have a testimony is to experience Christ. So that means that the only way to overcome a person's situation is to have the blood of the Christ applied and the word of their testimony. They have to have an experience with Christ. It's the reason why I believe, and this is me speaking, uh, I believe that the concept of conversion, the concept of new birth, the concept of salvation is more than just a mental ascent to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died on the cross for me. Okay, there is people out there that teach that that's all you have to do and then you're good to go. It doesn't matter whether you even become a Christian as long as you believe that. Okay, I can't buy into that, not because I believe that I can be saved by my works because I know I can, but I do have this belief that unless I have an experience with him, I will never understand him. Even if I say I believe him, listen, I believe Satan too, but I don't want to have an experience with him. Okay? I don't want to follow him. I don't want to listen to him. But I believe that he's real. Okay? Likewise, I don't want to just believe that Jesus is real, and I don't want to just believe that he died for me. I want to experience him. Does that make sense? And I don't want to experience him just so that I miss hell. Again, I've, uh, and maybe, maybe it's just me, but I have gotten to the point in my relationship with God and as a mouthpiece and a voice of leadership as a preacher, I have just about gone to this level as to whether or not heaven and hell is what Jesus really wants us to focus on. I believe that Jesus doesn't want anybody to go to hell. He wants everybody to go to heaven. But he did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He that cometh to me shall surely live. Okay? Doesn't say if he saves us out of hell, then we'll go to heaven. He says, if they come to me, come to the way, come to the truth, come to the life, get a hold of Jesus, experience him. Does that mean I have to do works? No, that means I have to come to him. The difference is, the, the, the principle that I see is this. My boys are my boys because they're my boys. Okay? But for them to have an inheritance of mine, they're going to have to have an experience with me. Because if I don't have an experience with them somewhere in their life, and I don't have a relationship somewhere in their life, the inheritance becomes just money. Even if, because even if I could leave them money, that money means something to them, not because it's money, but because it's me giving them the money. You see what I'm saying? They can't earn it, they just receive it, okay? It's more than just the gifts that God gives us. It's more than just the things that Christ gives us. It's more than just heaven. It's more than just streets of gold, gates of pearl, sea of crystal, crystal walls of jasper. It's more than that. It's Jesus. I would rather not have heaven and hell be a real thing if Jesus wasn't real. Does that make sense? 
But because I know Jesus is real, I want to go to heaven, not because it's heaven. I want to go to heaven because that's where Jesus is. I don't want to go to heaven just to miss hell. I want to go to heaven because that's where my friend is. That's where my savior is. That's where my God is. That's where the communion is going to take place. That's where I'm going to be able to rejoice in his, in his presence, not just miss hell. Does that make sense? And, 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 I, and I believe that for too long, churches have focused on getting out of hell and getting into heaven instead of getting to Jesus. And Jesus is saying it right here. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he said, give me something to drink. And he said, listen, I'm the one that's going to show you all things. He that is speaking to you, I am. And what ends up happening? The woman has a revelation of who he is and begins a conversation with him and has an experience with him and then goes and shares that experience and all these people come out and they have an experience with him. And you, I believe that these people that are in John chapter 4 are in Acts chapter 8. When they're baptized and the Holy Ghost falls and the church is established, I believe that the people of Samaria that were in this one didn't miss out in Acts chapter 8. Why? Because they had an experience. It wasn't just a mental ascent. It wasn't just a belief. It was an experience or a relationship with the Lord. You see, here's, here's where I believe this concept of missing heaven heaven and going to hell originates and we've talked about it a little bit and I mentioned even on Sunday but the concept of what was lost when Jesus said the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost for so long and I've been around 50 years so it's been longer than me for so long the churches have preached that which is lost is men and women that don't know Jesus. Okay? Now, they may be lost on their own, but they're not lost to Christ. Christ knows exactly where they're at. Christ knows what they're going through. Christ knows what they're thinking. Christ knows what they're experiencing. What was lost was the communion and the relationship that God had with man. And Jesus is there to reconcile that relationship, that communion that they had in the Garden of Eden. And so that which was lost is a sweet communion with him. And, and the, that phrase, he came to seek and say that which was lost, happens at the close of the, uh, of the scenario of Zacchaeus. When he sees Zacchaeus in the tree, he says, I've got to go to your house today. And he goes to the house and has a relationship with Zacchaeus. And he gets criticized for going to Zacchaeus' house. And Jesus responds to that criticism and says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Was Zacchaeus lost? No, Jesus knew he was in the sycamore tree. Because as he passed, he stopped and said, Zacchaeus, come down. How did he know who Zacchaeus was and that he was in the tree? Because he had an appointment and he knew exactly where Zacchaeus was. And he was getting ready to give Zacchaeus the opportunity to have an interaction with him. Just like he's done to each and every one of us at some point in our lives. He has made an opportunity for you and I to have a conversation with him. And communion with him. And people have criticized probably him for. Uh, I know people that have come to God that have been criticized. Well how could God save that guy or that girl 
Or, or how could they've done so much that they're just they're rotten to the core? But how could how could God? Because God came to seek and to save that communion that was lost, that relationship that was lost. You see, Jesus. There is a philosophy out there that Jesus came to keep us from going to hell. There's a problem with that. Is that God did not create hell for people. He created hell for the rebellious angels and Lucifer. Fully recognizing that men and women have chosen to be evil and wicked and go that, that direction. But he came to speak to us about us and him. It's the reason I love the song. Uh, uh, the, the verse says something to the effect of you didn't want heaven without us, so you brought heaven to us. Something to that effect. And, and, and that's really what happened. Jesus came here so that you and I could have a relationship. And, and here's, he, let me go on to say this. I said something a few weeks ago and some eyeballs got a little big. How do we expect to react in heaven if we don't know how to react in his presence now? Or how do we expect to worship with the believers then if we're not willing to worship with the believers now? Can, can I just tell you there's, if we can ever grasp the concept of getting lost in worship, not worrying about what people are doing or what people are seeing. Because I'm sorry, when I get to heaven, I'm not going to worry about whether or not somebody's dancing to the, to the right beat or not. I'm not going to be worrying whether they're shouting or they're crying or, or, they're, or they're speaking in a heavenly language or they're rejoicing or they're prostrate before God or they're standing before God. I'm not going to, because I'm going to be focused on worshiping Him, but I want to worship with them. Well, let's take heaven here and worship the same way. And when, when that happens, the presence of God becomes so thick. Well, what does that mean? That means we get a little bit of heaven. Heaven is heaven, not just because of the, the place that he is creating for us, although that's going to be absolutely mind-blowing, but heaven is going to be heaven because that's where Jesus is going to be. And so if on earth in our eternal life already, we can get into the presence of God and we know it's the presence of God, we're getting a little bit of heaven here on earth. And that's why we feel so good in his presence because he has come to save that. He has come to create that connection again. He's, that's the reconciliation. That's the restoration. That's what God wants from us is that sweet, sweet communion and presence with him. Praise God. Is there any questions out of chapter 4? I know we didn't finish the full chapter. You're on your own with the nobleman's faith. Yeah, the, the, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, we would be wise 
if there was a little bit of trepidation in the presence of God. Okay? Now, there are some people that will say, well, that doesn't mean to be afraid. It means to have awe and reverence. Okay? That's true. It does mean to have awe and reverence. But to have awe and reverence also has a little bit of fear that I'm going to disappoint. Okay? It's not anything to do with God in that when I talk about the fear there. It has to do with, with, with man. There are some things that we do, we don't necessarily classify it as fear, but there's reasons why we don't put our hands on the hot iron. Okay? Because we have become wise to the fact that we're going to get burned. Okay? I don't take the presence of God lightly because it's something to be reverent about. Okay? And so I fear touching the heat of the heavens, if you will. There again, it's not about him, it's about me. Because there is two aspects of the Lord. And uh, in his presence, because here's what we don't see. We don't recognize it, but when the presence of God begins to move in a service, there is a heat of the presence of God. The Bible talks about it this way, that when the potter will put it on the, the heat and the and begin to put the gold and all this junk comes to the top and, and all the purity is left. Well, whether we realize it or not, that's what's happening when we're in the presence of God. God is heating us up and it's bringing all the junk to the top and he's scraping that off and he's releasing the purity. It's why you always feel better afterwards. When, after you come out of the presence of God, you always feel better. Why? Because he has heated up the pot, if you will, and scraped off the, the junk and you're left with that pure until you go out and you mess it up again, okay? And, and so when I say fear, I'm saying that heat, we can get burned by it from time to time if we take it lightly. So when I come into the presence of God, that little bit of fear, again, I act like I did with my father growing up. I, I, I did, there were some things that I wanted to do that I did not do because I didn't want to irritate him. I didn't want to make him displeased. It wasn't because I was fearful of him, you know, hating me or kicking me out or any of that, but I didn't want the repercussions of my actions because I knew what my dad stood for and what I was allowed to do and not allowed to do, okay? And I knew that he would chasten me because he loved me. I don't like the chastening of the Lord. I accept it because I know he's doing it because he's loved me and I've made a stupid mistake, okay? But if I can walk the straight and narrow because I fear being chastened by God, that's what I'm talking about. I, I, can, I can make myself do what I'm supposed to do if I don't want to deal with the, the chastening of the Lord. Here, the problem with some people, though, is they get so used to the chastening of God that if God's not chastening them, they don't think God even cares. Those are those drama people. And those are the ones that are always praying, God, help me out of this, help me out of that. Well, what's that really talking about? That what they've allowed themselves to get into the cycle where unless God is either doing something for them, changing something, washing it, cleansing it, which we like to say, well, Lord, wash us and cleanse us. But washing and cleansing is not a comfortable thing. You know, you even go back to the old-fashioned days where you had the washboards. That if, if you were fabric, you didn't feel very well. 
You go to the modern washing machines and the, ir the irritator and the you're, you're getting scrubbed. Who wants that? <laughs> no, the after effect is great, but I'd rather not get dirty in the first place. But when I do, I know I have God there to chase me. Does that make sense? Anybody else?